Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The team behind Fidelity Global Intrinsic Value Class are today's Fidelity Connects podcast guests. Salem Hart, who initially joined Fidelity as a quantitative analyst, co-manages the fund alongside Morgan Peck and Sam Chamovitz. The three of them speak with host Pat Ballin today to share their thoughts on the markets, provide a fund update, and to discuss the transition of Morgan and Sam being added to the fund last year, leading up to portfolio manager Joel Tillinghast's upcoming retirement in late 2023. They'll also reflect on how the fund is designed to navigate these challenging market conditions and share where globally they are finding cheap and high-quality companies these days, among other topics. Today's podcast was recorded on December 9th, 2022, and was recorded in front of a live audience at our December Focus 2022 event for financial advisors. Now, as this was from a live event, you may hear a few slides being referenced. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Well, somebody on this stage put everybody else to shame. What were you doing, Morgan, first thing this morning? I went to the gym. Yeah, nobody went to the gym here, myself included. Congratulations. Thank well you. Done. Thanks. All good things must pass. And Joel Tillinghast has announced his retirement, but we don't know you guys at all. So let's start with Sam and Morgan. Sam first, tell us about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Pat. And thanks everybody for uh, coming today. So I joined the industry in 2002 at a competitor, and then I moved over to Fidelity in 2007 as we were looking to develop the international small cap research team. And so, you know, I understood Fidelity from friends there, and I understood that the domestic small cap team was quite strong with a unique culture, and Morgan was already kind of part of that. And so I was really interested to, to look at that team, and, and, you know, Joel was a, a key central member of that, and, and I was an aspiring kind of value investor, whatever I thought that meant at the time. And, you know, the opportunity to come and work with him and, or try to, to get that job was, you know, really intriguing to me. So I, I think I did 28 interviews, one of which was Joel, and so obviously I was able to get through that and, and join the team. And then in 08, I moved to Japan, and although you know, we were starting that office, I was the first investor for FMR in Tokyo, and you know, the thought was I could really help the, the team, and, and mostly Joel, kind of being on the ground, looking at, at a lot of these Asian and Japanese small caps for us. In, in 14, I took over the International Small Cap Fund, but even before that, the transition to portfolio management started for me in 2012 with Morgan, co-managing you know, funds together, internal funds, and so that we've been working together in that capacity for a decade. And then I guess well, I'll give one thing that I've learned from Joel over the years that maybe is not so obvious. I guess Joel, Joel's really focused on the customer experience, and I think a lot of people in the industry focus on alpha, and, and he thinks about actually the alpha capture for the customer, which is 
kind of alpha plus sustainability in the fund, so consistency, volatility, as well as kind of taxes. And that's one of the things that may be less obvious that I've really taken away from my experience with Joel over the years. Okay, in Canada, you come in as an analyst first, and then you become a portfolio manager over time. Does it work the same way in the States, or were you coming in and running, well, no, you were an analyst first, but is that typical? Yes, yeah, so I started as an associate, and, and so those, you know, at Fidelity and, and at Putnam, where I started is a three-year program. The, some folks get promoted after that. Some people go back to business school. I was fortunate enough to move straight from associate to analyst, and then you know, some people at Fidelity can spend their careers as analysts and, and be very senior investors, and we're fortunate enough to have a lot of those folks running our kind of industrials team and our financials team, and then other folks for different skill sets or reasons become portfolio managers, and that's the path that that, that Morgan Solomon and I have taken. Hmm. Okay, Morgan, it's your background. Thanks. So uh, it's great to be here this morning. Thanks for everyone's time. Um, so I joined Fidelity in 2003 as a research associate, uh, similar to Sam. And my first group that I was assigned was small cap consumer staples companies. Uh, and I was very fortunate because Joel was a shareholder in a number of these companies. So literally within the first week of being on the job, I was in Joel's office asking him questions. I'm learning from him. And he also interviewed me just like Sam. So it was great to actually work with the legend that, that interviewed you. I joined the small cap team sort of full time a couple years after I started at the firm. And that's really meant that I've had a front row seat to learning from Joel for the duration of my career. As Sam mentioned, in around 2016, 2017, we became co-PMs on some funds with Joel, and that really took our ability to learn from him to a newer level. And, you know, that learning from Joel has come in so many ways over the years, but it's really been in just ongoing dialogues about stocks after meetings. You know, when you go to visit a company together, you go to a conference. So it's, it's just been this amalgamation of so many interactions and discussions with Joel over the years that has had a lot of impact on me as an investor. And I could spend an hour or longer talking about all the things that I've learned from Joel, but the most impactful thing that I've learned from him is the importance to have humility and intellectual honesty about how hard it is to predict the future when you're trying to analyze a business. And because of that, he's really made the point that it's important to focus on companies with low embedded expectations or stocks that are undervalued. At the same time, it's really important to also look for quality characteristics in businesses because that can provide really good downside support. So th those combination of factors are things I've noticed Joel looking for over the years, and that's really become part of our process. And I think that that you know, similarities we have with Joel are really going to set us up for success in the future. Yeah, let's talk about that process because uh, Joel wrote a book, as you well know, Thinking Big About Small or something along those yep. lines. Yep. And it really is a series of rules or guidelines. How firmly did you guys actually stick to those? I think uh, pretty, pretty strictly. Um, I mean, you know, we all have our own investment process and approach. Um, and, and those are made up of a number of different sort of rules, quote unquote. 
And I think we view it as our fiduciary duty to stick to that process and approach. It's not as easy as a laundry list. If investing were that easy, then <laughs> it would be a lot easier. Um, but it's not, it's not that easy. But we absolutely are you know, very motivated on staying focused on what our core investment process is, which for Joel, that was you know, the genesis of the book. Okay, so then I'm wondering if you go through that process, and Joel is not gone, right? He still comes in every. How is that transition going right now? Sure. So, so I'll kick it off. Um, and you bring up a great uh, point, Pat. There are two things I just want to make really clear before I, I talk about the transition. The first is that while Joel is taking a step back from active money management, he's not retiring from Fidelity. And that means that he is going to continue to be a mentor to us. He'll really be a thought leader for the whole you know, division, the company, for years to come. The second point I, I want to make, and, and Sam touched on this earlier, is that while the structure of co-management perhaps may be a little bit new to, to these funds, it's not new for Sam and me. We've been co-managing together, as he said, for over a decade, and that means that we're very comfortable operating as a team. So I think that those factors are going to allow for success. But to answer your question directly, the transition is going very well. It's going seamlessly. And you know, maybe a year ago, when Joel was the sole decision maker, he would certainly take our input, but he'd make the ultimate decision in terms of, you know, what to buy and positioning. Fast forward to today, Sam and I have had a lot of influence and impact on the fund, and we now sort of think about it like an investment committee of three, where there are three equal voices at the table, and we're having constant dialogue and discussion, which, which is great. So, Sam, post-transition, do you see any changes? Yeah, I think, um, which, you know, unsurprisingly, Morgan and, and I philosophically are very highly aligned with Joel, and so I would, I would expect very little changes from kind of a characteristic perspective of, of the fund overall. I think, again, Morgan and my process is very aligned with what Joel does, so it's a value-based approach. It's comparing price and value, and it's opportunistic, it's broad, so we cast a very wide net, we take a very long-term horizon. All these things we have developed over the 15 or 20 years working with Joel, and then implementing together for the last decade in actual funds. So I, I would reiterate what Morgan says. I think the transition's gone incredibly well. You know, we're taking more and more of the lead on things, and um, I would expect investors to get something very similar in the future to what they've had in the past. Okay, Solomon's been sitting over there very quietly and patiently. All sounds really good. You're not, it all sounds really good. You're not going anywhere. You're still, what's your role now? Changed? Uh, no, I'm, 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 I'll be staying in my current role, um, transitioning, working from Joel, and, and Pat's good to see, good to see you good again. Good to see you well. again. Thank yeah. you guys to all your, uh, all the loyal shareholders we've had over the years. Um, yeah, my role continues to be the same. I've worked with Joel since 2015 when we launched the fund um, as a as a co-portfolio manager, and as you mentioned, it's been you know, it's been quite successful over that time. I think if you look at our process that Sam and Morgan articulated well, value, quality, stocks doing smart things with their capital, uh, companies you know, really really understanding their markets. You know, those are the types of things that I feel like really lend themselves to hard facts and quantitative inputs. And as was mentioned in the intro, I have a quantitative background. So I'm able to 
kind of really help with that process and quantify a lot of things. And the goal on me teaming up with Joel originally and why he wanted me to help him out is really to take care of a lot of things that the quantitative processes can do a little bit more efficiently and save him time and now save Sam Morgan time to really focus on what they love mm. and what they do really well, which is the fundamental stock picking. Um, so my role on the fund has always been um, I manage the day-to-day -day flows, I do portfolio construction, uh, I size positions, um, I'm always running screens for, for everyone to try to find new opportunities, and really I'm trying to optimize the portfolio to give the shareholders a better experience both from a, um, yeah, a return and a risk perspective. So I'm kind of there uh, doing the, the nitty-gritty, helping them cast a wide net. You know, Sam and Morgan are inheriting over a thousand stocks from Joel. We often talk about name count. Um, and I think some of the quantitative inputs really help them get the breadth, and then they can take the time to go down into depth on the individual companies. So you know, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm really excited to be working with Morgan and Sam, but I've, I've been working with them both on low price and when I was an analyst on the small cap team many years ago. So we all have a long history together, and I think it's been a very, a very well thought out process in terms of how this is kind of progressing and, uh, and, and it's going well. But for Canadian investors, I mean, your name has been associated to this particular fund for a long period of time. It would be natural to make the assumption that you are the lead on this, or is that a fair thing to say? I would say that that's not the case. Um, I think we're all working together as a team, and, and Morgan and Sam are welcome to, to weigh in as well. I think you know, Fidelity is a fundamental research organization. That's how we run our fund. So I think the fundamental process will always continue to drive the stocks that get in the portfolio. Joel and now Morgan and Sam will bless every stock that comes into the portfolio from a fundamental perspective. And my job is to kind of do more of the optimization and, and the day-to-day -day work on it. Mm -hmm. well, great to have I you back. One thing. Sure. I mean, you know, Morgan and I talk about being co-managers for 10 years, but Solomon was in the room 10 years ago while we were constructing those initial portfolios. So it's been a, a, a team of three for a long time. Oh, on your own portfolio before this? Oh, I didn't know So that. 10 years ago when we were starting the internal funds and, and working as co-managers on oh. those, Solomon was there helping build that process and, and think through what works kind of from a quantitative perspective and how to address that. So Three amigos. There you go. Yeah. Uh, listen, uh, Joel's a good friend, and he always has great stories, but I want to hear a story from you. What was it like, each of you, I guess, being on the road, you know, in Japan or somewhere else with Joel? So um, fundamental research, as we've alluded to here, is the core of the process, and getting out and, and meeting management teams and kicking the tires on their home turf is crucial to that. And, and our investment teams around the world are really on a daily basis trying to differentiate their views you know, out in the field. And you know, I've had the fortunate privilege to travel around the world with Joel and many countries and continents and dozens and dozens of uh, company meetings. So really kind of digging deep on on companies, cultures, risks, geopolitical situations, but as, you know, as well as like as a mentor and, and, and friend, you know, exploring the food culture and, and a lot of the, the touristy things on the weekends. But, you know, I'll give one. Oh, oh you did do touristy things on the weekends? With, I... with Joel, so we've done a bunch of these things and, uh, you know, that's fun. It's, it's a good way to also get to know the cultures better and whatnot, which influences you know, investing over a long period of time. And so I'll give one, you know, story which is kind of tragic at the start, which is we were together in the earthquake oh. in Japan in 2011. So we were out out in Japan together and 
you know, that was a, obviously a tragic event and, and hard for, for everybody involved. But we were really able to learn so much about the Japanese people, the culture, the resilience, and, you know, just take the respect for the country up so much further. But it, it has translated also to kind of an understanding of why they do what they do from a business perspective, why they may have more conservative balance sheets, why management thinks about uh, society as a whole instead of just kind of short-term earnings. And, and I think... You know, as tragic as it was, we learned a lot about the country, the people, and, and the businesses through that process together. Mm. Morgan. Sure. So as Sam said, fundamental research is core to our process, and some of the best learnings are indeed on the road. And we've both been fortunate to travel quite a bunch with Joel. And I have many stories I could regale you with, but I think the two most memorable, one visit was also in Tokyo. It was not, I did, I did not make it to the dramatic earthquake visit that you guys were on, thankfully. Um, but I went to Japan for a week uh, at this conference. Sam was there. Uh, Joel obviously joined. And it was probably a dozen companies a day. And I went to pretty much every meeting with Joel. And it was amazing to me to see how how much admiration these management teams had for Joel because they had met him for years. They knew who Joel was, they loved his questions, and he, his questions, it was very clear, had a lot of impact on how they thought about their business, which is a really powerful thing. So that was a wonderful trip. The second trip was completely different, um, but also uh, a wonderful learning experience. So Fidelity makes its annual pilgrimage out to the annual meeting for uh, Berkshire Hathaway out in Omaha, Nebraska. And one year I went, Joel was, was on the trip as well, and it's, it's a whole experience, and you know we have to get up very early in the morning on Saturday to line up outside the Quest Center so you can run in to get your seats. That literally happens. So you know it's before probably 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday, and we've gotten our seats. And then the task at hand, and, and this was before the three reporters were funneling questions to Charlie and Warren during the annual meeting like happens these days. Before that, uh, they would put question boxes throughout the Quest Center. And so once we got our seats, they split us up into pairs, and we had to run around the Quest Center stuffing fidelity questions in the question box so that our questions would get asked. <laughs> Um, and of course, we, we brought a lot of questions. And so I was paired up with Joel. And so we were basically like kind of running stadiums in the Quest Center at a very early hour, trying to get all of our questions in the question box. But the best part was that Joel's question got picked and Warren and Charlie were answering it. And Joel's question um, really centered around the growth of intangible assets and the impact that had on company balance sheets and how Warren and Charlie thought about that phenomenon, as well as how to value companies with, with this new, you know, growing asset. So it, that was one of the, the best travels that I've had with Joel. But needless to say, it's, it's core to our process, um, you know, and we plan to have more trips with Joel in the future. Here's, I don't even know the answer to this, and he's a buddy. Does he speak Japanese? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Like he's got a lot of Japanese investments. He, right? does. he does not speak Japanese. Uh, I think what he's so disciplined about what he thinks works, and he sticks to that, and tries to ferret that out both quantitatively and then qualitatively via translators. And our, you know, remember we have Japanese-speaking analysts on the ground in Tokyo, covering across all the sectors and relying on them as well to kind of keep that due diligence on. 
Uh, I, I'm kind of through with the transition questions because I want to talk about uh, the market, but before we do, Solomon, I do have a transition question for you. Are you planning on reducing, or all three of you, but Solomon, I'll start with you. Uh, are you planning on reducing the amount of holdings in the fund as the transition occurs? That, great question. That is a great start. question, yeah. yeah. I would agree, and I think, um, you know, Morgan and Sam and I have talked about that over the last several months. And I think you, I'd say marginally, yes. Not full scale, we're going down to 100 names. But I think at the margin, Joel has always held holdings for, for various reasons. Sometimes it's to track them. In the old days, it was so he would get mailed an annual report in the mail because if he was a shareholder, the company would be required to send him an annual report to all their shareholders. So there's various reasons Joel has has owned very, very minuscule positions, 100 shares, 1,000 shares in companies. And I think these days, the team has better ways to track stocks and get shareholder reports and those types of things that we don't need little placeholder positions. So I think in that tale, when something's not a meaningful position, you may see us have you know, five or 10 basis point position sizes at the small end, not 0 0.01 basis point position sizes. So I think in that respect, you could see it come down marginally, but um, not in a full-scale way. I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. He, he also had almost an institutional memory. It, it'd be hard to know all the names he was dealing with. Yes, exactly. I mean, Joel has a photographic memory. I've told many stories of how I go in the, into his office and try to pitch him a stock, and he's like, oh, yeah, I, I met with that CEO, you know, seven months ago, and oh, I have his CD. He plays in a band, and I have his CD somewhere. Let me get it for you. And I'm like, really, Joel, that's okay. Um, I don't need the CD, but that's really interesting <laughs> factoid. Um, like, yeah, crazy stuff like that happens. So. You made an interesting comment about the customer experience. How is Joel's customer experience different than the way you're going to do it? I think the goal is for the customer experience to be very much aligned. I think it, you know the point was more how much we've learned about thinking through the actual customer outcome versus just kind of the alpha on the the front end. And so the the goal, as mentioned, is that you know that laser focus on the customer and 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 their experience remains. The consistency of the process remains, and uh, hopefully the outcome remains. Hmm. Yeah, I would say we're very focused on the fiduciary duty in this role, very similar to Joel's approach. Okay, let's talk about the markets, because the markets have been volatile, and I can ask any of this, but I'll start with Solomon again. Uh, volatility is the hallmark of this market. Uh, what are your thoughts now? Has it become a little bit less volatile? Or? You know, I think we're in a, in a difficult part, and, and I'll, I'll let um, you know, Sam weigh in as well. He might have some thoughts, but, you know, I think... We're, we're at a, play, a place where it's pretty clear the economy's softening. You know, the, the debate is, is how much will it have to soften in order to stop the Fed from, from sending the, the economy into an even worse recession than it is. So things are slowing. We're trying to find companies, as we always have, that are, that are very high quality. And I think that's one reason global intrinsic value has held up so well this year. Um, it's really kind of a... a you know, a ballast of stability in the volatile markets we've had. And I think that's, I think there's multiple reasons for that. One is obviously that we tend to buy high quality stocks and we will dip down that quality spectrum sometime. But maybe your question, we aren't there yet. We, we haven't really felt like the market's in full capitulation mode where really low quality assets are, are cheap enough to, to start going down the quality spectrum. So, so that's one thing. And I also I think, you know, our value approach has lent itself to navigating these markets well. Uh, Mm. Not only do value stocks have a lot of downside protection uh, kind of built in them because they're cheap, because 
there's not a lot of fast money in them. Um, there's not a lot of speculation. It, it, they're less crowded trades. But also, you know, value stocks often are, are more capital intensive, and they actually can benefit from inflation because they have product-producing assets on the balance sheet that, that they've bought at lower prices. Their margins are actually can, can help hold up well in these environments as they rise prices that some of their costs don't come down. And I think um, you know, we're also navigating it. I talked about portfolio construction earlier. You know, in volatile markets like this, I do feel like you have to have a well-constructed portfolio. So not only do we manage the risk at the portfolio level and, and all of our exposures in geographic and sector, but you know, with Morgan and Sam, we also really try to manage our risk at the position size level. And that's something I think we've all really learned from Joel is risk isn't just a function of portfolio volatility, but it's a, it's a function of what are the potential outcomes of each individual company? You know, what's the probability there's a zero on this one? And Joel really likes to avoid those like the plague. Uh, and I think that provides a lot of ballast to the portfolio in, in difficult markets, but still protects the upside um, that we're able to achieve because the companies are still earning money and still growing. But with the markets themselves, I think we expect more volatility, and I, I think they are getting quite a bit cheaper. So Sam Morgan have been finding a lot more opportunities, I think, mm. um, because of some of the drawdowns we have in certain areas. Um, and I'll let them weigh in on, on kind of the outlook, too, if they'd like to. Go ahead, Sam, because uh, value, as he pointed out, has been kind of out of favor for a long period of time. <clears throat> How are yeah. you feeling now? Yeah, so I guess you know, markets have long cycles, but value itself as a, as a style empirically does well. And I think you know, our belief in the, the core tenets of that are, are steadfast, and we, it doesn't waver kind of cycle to cycle. I guess you know, when we think about kind of where the markets are today, I think it's a lot more interesting than it was you know, a year ago. Uh, from a value perspective, and in particular with that kind of wide net that we cast, you know, small cap stocks or small cap value stocks, international stocks, the starting valuations that you're starting to see today, at least historically, would 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 indicate quite attractive returns with an appropriate horizon. Now, there are pockets of the market that are kind of more attractive than others. Those pockets also tend to be areas where people are the most concerned. So it may be big ticket consumer products or consumer products that require financing, areas that, that really benefited from COVID. So those are areas that are kind of front and center for fear. Fear means lower valuations, but fear also means like they tend to be attractive areas with longer term perspectives to kind of hunt for new ideas. And that's kind of where I think Morgan and I are spending a lot of our incremental time Agreeing with Psalm that we're probably not quite at the bottom, but we are at areas where, with a medium-term view, comparing price and value, things are starting to get more interesting. So we're, we've been more active in those areas, and that's exciting. You know, mm-hmm. kind of a couple of years ago in that core growth market, you just it was more frustrating for value investors. But we really believe in the process. And Joel has something he likes to say: says you have to be emphatic about something, and so kind of what he's alluding to is you can be a, a momentum investor, you can be a growth investor, you can be a value investor, but you can't really be everything and you can't really change your stripes. And I think the three of us on stage here are you know, true believers in value investing and sticking to that discipline. And Morgan, you've got a really cool chart that kind of illustrates where you're seeing value around the uh, world as well. U.S. small caps is like top of the list. Yes, but a few points. One, thanks to Solomon for pulling this together. Um, so 
as I think both Solomon and Sam have alluded to, and is not a surprise to anyone in this room, with, with all the macro concerns and volatility, we've seen some pretty big drawdowns in equity markets across the globe. So most, most indices are trading around, uh, under 15 times next year's earnings. If you were to look at this chart a year ago, most of the indices would be trading north of 15 times, and U.S. small cap would be closer to 30 times. Most of the um, global indices would be trading closer to you know, 20 times. So valuations have reset pretty dramatically. The other point to note with the small caps being at the top end of the spectrum, if you peel out the unprofitable constituents, the valuation for U.S. small caps, which is where we tend to traffic, at least within the U.S. names, those valuations are much more attractive. Those are under 15 times. So, so we've seen valuations reset. And the second thing that, you know, we've seen this many times in the past, when you get these big macro fears, stocks tend to trade much more on macro news or on headlines and much less on company-specific fundamentals. And certainly the macro impacts company fundamentals, but oftentimes the market can overshoot. So we've seen um, you know, some proverbial babies thrown out with the bathwater. And you know, as Sam sort of alluded to a minute ago, the areas we're spending more time in finding opportunities. I guess I would highlight three of them. Um, one is consumer discretionary, and that's really a, um, a global comment. So we're finding ideas both here in the US as well as in Europe. Um, specifically within retail and auto suppliers where too much fear seems to be starting to get priced in for some companies. A second area we're spending a lot of time is within tech distributors and semi-semi-cap equipment names. That's mostly in Asia where we're finding expectations are, are pretty low for some of these companies. And then the last area, bringing it back to Japan, um, that remains uh, a market where we're finding quality companies that are trading at attractive valuation. So um, to Sam's point, it's, it's very painful when the market resets, but for us, it's really exciting because we're, we're able to find more opportunities. But if you have such a high presence in Japan, we're sitting at 12 times uh, PE, and yet global intrinsic value is less than nine, how, are, how do you hold a bunch of securities in that space and still be so low? How does that work? We're really good at finding the cheap ones. And this is a this this is an index average, right? This is not right. we're this is the value that we're providing is turning over all of these rocks to find companies that are gonna outperform the respective sort of markets that we're in. I think that's the whole thing that we do is Pat, we're scouring all of these markets every day all across the world trying to find the very cheapest, best companies within each of these. And I think that's how we get to, to such an attractive um, not only valuation metric for global intrinsic value, but overall portfolio characteristics. But you still have to provide returns, right? And I think, Solomon, you've got another chart that looks at growth, for instance, versus value around the world. And you might have to walk me through what I'm looking at here. Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, I think the growth versus value debate is fascinating. I'm not sure why it really goes in cycles that are so long. Maybe part of its interest rates, mathematically, that makes sense from just a DCF discounted cash flow analysis that you know growth earnings are further out, so as rates come up, it makes those earnings less valuable. But you know, in practice, you don't actually see that correlation with interest rates that much in the markets. You know, if you remember in 2000, um, growth stocks crashed, yet interest rates were, were falling all the way into into 2003. So there's only a loose relationship there. I tend to think that. These cycles are because, because of crowding and investors do get really euphoric and over-optimistic about certain spaces, and that's the slide I wanted to show. We started showing the slide a couple years ago um, in 2020, maybe, maybe a little too early, maybe a year or two too early, but 
Um, you know, what this shows is I think it does a great job on a really simplistic way highlighting where the pockets of euphoria and crowding are in the market. So we took basically by decade, over the last five decades, the 10 biggest stocks in the world each decade. In 1980, those were mainly US stocks and heavily influenced by the energy industry. And if you remember, the 80s was actually a pretty terrible time to invest in energy stocks and international outperformed. Right. In 1990 was the top of the Japanese market bubble. Um, three decades later, those, you know, many of those stocks still haven't recovered and the Japanese market is still below its prior peak. 2000 was an obvious bubble with tech media telecom, the TMT bubble. And then 2010 was, was actually quite different, kind of a return to commodities. If you remember the peak oil argument, you know, at the time the Fed was inflating the economy after the you know, financial crisis and people were really worried about inflation, perhaps a decade early, but um, a lot of commodity stocks, you know, really, really went up with uh, fears about oil reserves and also, uh, um, you know, a weaker dollar at that point. Um, but over the next decade from 2010 to 2020, actually commodities did uh, really poorly and all, all those international stocks on the list, international stocks actually underperformed the U.S. by quite a bit. So here we are in 2020. You know, how do these lessons apply to today? And here, obviously, you have you know, the Facebooks, Googles, Alphabets, Microsoft, Apples, really all the um, kind of internet, social media stocks, and that's where the euphoria has been in the market, really in the tech space. If you look at you know, the, the, just the proliferation of IPOs, unprofitable you know, tech software companies, many more social media things, there's just a lot more competition in that space. So not only is the space crowded, Valuation's quite expensive. There's, there's actually been a lot more competition, which will hurt, hurt margins. So I, I think people have to think about, yes, there's always a fundamental story to each of these buckets. You know, the internet was really first developing in 2000. Commodities were expensive, and, and at some point we'll, we'll run out. And you know, in 1990, Japan was kind of taking over the world in terms of being a leader in, in exports. So there's always a fundamental story here. I think people just have to analyze how crowded has, has it become, how expensive are these stocks. And our, our, our argument is that really you've seen a lot of the kind of the smaller cap um, unprofitable tech stocks uh, already collapsing until you see some carnage kind of in this top space and it's replaced by a new set of leaders. We feel like value has a long way to run um, over, you know, over the next decade. Um, there's still a lot of opportunities there. All the valuation metrics I look at on growth versus value is the growth does trade at a premium to value over time on average, but that valuation gap is still quite extended. So we feel extremely uh, comfortable and confident that um, the value can be a good place to invest. You know, that's interesting, the way that rotation works. And so I guess you're banking on that 1990 fad of Japan at some point coming back. Uh, that's what you're really saying. Absolutely. At some point, you'll see uh, Japanese stocks back in the top 10. I don't know which decade that will be, but um, we've been, we've, we're waiting for that. We, yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath. Okay, the, interesting though. Let's discuss some of these things that we've gone over. Consumer discretionary, I think, Morgan, you touched on. Sam, uh, and I'm noting uh, that back in 1980, energy was big. What are your thoughts on energy right now? Yeah, so um, I guess over the history, energy hasn't been a big part of, of the process. And Joel has typically been underweight energy. And the reason is it's, it's a commodity which tends to focus a lot on supply growth and kind of high prices or the medicine for high prices. But about a year ago, that kind of shifted and we've been more active in this space since then. And, and, and a couple changes. First, pessimism was extreme. Mm. And, you know, the markets and investors kind of really bought into this kind of 
declining uh, secular kind of death of the industry. And we kind of viewed it as probably overly pessimistic from a demand perspective. But more importantly, there were major changes on the supply side. This is an industry that had been underinvested in for a decade. Management teams, KPIs, and focus had shifted from volume growth, and again, kind of high prices being the medicine for high prices, to cash flow and shareholder return. And so we're not seeing that big shift back into capital spending. So supply remains subdued. And as long as there's this gap between supply and demand, these companies are gushing cash flow, and that cash flow, instead of going back into the ground to ultimately destroy the higher prices, is being returned to shareholders in terms of buybacks at what we consider to be very attractive prices. So insofar as the market isn't appreciating the cash flow and those cash flows are being used to create value to shareholders, we think there's a, an opportunity. So there's still a lot of skepticism around energy in, in the markets. There's still a major underinvestment in the area, and we're trying to invest in the areas that we think have longer duration, so businesses that may be transition fuels like gas or integrated oil companies, which may you know, also be investing in the future of, of renewables and things like that, while at the same time having a very underappreciated core business and cash flow today. So we think there's a lot of opportunities still, and, and, um, and, and so have been very active in the space the last a, year. Is there a geography that is more in tune with that energy? I think we, we've been more focused on the North American energy industry. I think part of that is, you know, again, it's a global commodity. And so if we can get that exposure close to home, why take the currency risk, the geopolitical risk, et cetera? And then also a lot of the, the foreign companies, especially when you get into Asia, are kind of SOEs or government proxies, which is kind of a dangerous place to invest. And then, you know, what we've seen in, the, in Europe, too, is a little bit of populism. And, and we think kind of the cash flows are more protected here in North America for shareholders than, than other parts of the world. Uh, Morgan, from that chart we saw from Solom, uh tech was in the whole 2020 column there. Yeah. Uh, and yet you mentioned tech as being attractive at this point in Asia. Walk me through that. Sure. So technology is obviously composed of a couple bigger subsectors, which trade really differently. So to answer the question, we sort of have to peel a layer of the onion back. Sam and I are often asked about software, given the drawdown that we've seen in, in many stocks. You know, Saul alluded to some of the, the small cap unprofitable companies collapsing or the stock prices collapsing. So if you look at software, the short answer is we're not finding a lot of ideas that fit our process right now, but we're always looking. Part of that is because a number of the constituents are those unprofitable software companies that just don't have a clear pathway or desire to become free cash flow generating assets for a long period of time. So those don't fit the process. That if you go sort of up cap and more globally, you will find software companies that are, you know, generating some free cash flow. And those stocks have come down, um, but they're not undervalued just because something was trading at 50 to 60 times earnings a year ago, and now it's trading at 30 times. That, that's, that's not a, a value to us. So um, software, we're not being particularly active, but you mentioned, you know, in Asia, with semis. Semis and semi-cap equipment within technology is an area of interest for us where we are finding opportunities. 
we like the fact that that subsector is exposed to some longer-term structural trends like um, you know, more chips being used in more places, right? It's not just about consumer electronics. It's those, those use cases are proliferating. Um, and the difficulty of, of manufacturing a chip is just continues to become difficult. So those are not novel themes. Everyone knows about that. But because of the concerns around demand, there still is a semi-cycle and especially now, geopolitical concerns is driving some pretty big dislocations between you know, price and value, and we're just finding more of those in Asia. So that, that's, in a nutshell, what we're doing within tech. Perfect. We've got two or three minutes left, Solomon, so I'll leave those with you. Where does this global intrinsic value fit in somebody's portfolio? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think um, global intrinsic value really fits the bill for a, a fund that offers a lot of alpha opportunity over the cycle. But... That's not the only thing that I, I feel like it's, it's attractive on. You know, I think our investors really appreciate that global intrinsic value has always brought a very style-consistent um, approach to investing, one that they can re rely on and really understand when the fund's performing how it is, that we haven't changed our investment process, right? It's been very consistent since day one, and I think that's the reason Morgan and Sam and I really all wanted to come down here at a time that's, that's quite busy is to say it's not changing, right? What you've always got from global intrinsic value, its style consistency will continue to be there um, you know, as time progresses, um, and we all share that philosophy. Um, I think the third thing that global intrinsic value provides um, you know, to investors is it's quite unique in its holdings, not just the portfolio overall. It's one of the cheapest funds out there, as Morgan's slide showed at the, at the bottom at you know, eight times earnings. But the types of stocks that it owns, um, the microcaps in Japan that are trading at negative enterprise value below the cash on their balance sheet. We have an insurer um, in Germany that's trading below breakup value. Um, we own a Mexican um, stock exchange with good growth opportunities, but a very reasonable valuation. These are the types of stocks that you really can't buy you know, yourself in portfolios. They're difficult to buy. They're hard to find. Um, they're illiquid oftentimes. And uh, often they're difficult because they require a lot of patience and sometimes all of the above, right? So, you know, this is why you hire active managers to buy these types uh, of stocks for you. And I think it, it really fills a hole for a lot of people's portfolios and what it provides. But I think it can also be a really good core position for people's equity position in their asset allocation. Um, just the diversification, whether it's geography, sector, or market cap, really, I think, resonates with people and brings the risk profile down and I think uh, you know, the key to successful investing, I think, is being able to stick with investments in tough times. And I think global intrinsic value is one where, in a portfolio, given the performance profile and the downside protection, I think uh, people are able to stick with it and allows them to sleep well at night. So Sam, Morgan, a real pleasure to meet you. Solemn, great to have you back. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.